You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. I'm delighted to be here with you tonight. I'm going to read this evening from Exodus chapter 20. It is a familiar passage of scripture for many of you here tonight. I will read it. It it will be a little lengthier than some texts that I would read to start a message, but I will attempt to read quickly. How's that? Exodus chapter 20, reading in verse number 1, the word of the Lord says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the house of out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Aren't you glad for that? Ooh, thank God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Glad the Bible doesn't end right there. And showing mercy, thank God, unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And because you are such intelligent people, you are aware that what I just read to you is what we would call, see, you're very intelligent. The Ten Commandments, not ten suggestions, not ten good ideas. God's not bashful about giving commandments. I told the church that I led, God has this little identity crisis. He thinks he's God. and He's not bashful to look at people that he brought out of bondage and say, now here's how you should live. That's, that, that's not a burden to us. That's a blessing to us. We're not in Egypt building pyramids anymore. He set us free. And so if because our deliverer wants to give us some guidelines, that's not, that's not him being a bully. That's the mercy of God that brought us out of bondage. So we thank God for that. My message title tonight is a little unique. If you have tried to convince your fellow worshipers that before you came, even before you came to God, you knew nothing of the beggarly elements of sin, if you've tried to hold up the image that you very nearly came out of your mother's womb speaking in tongues, which I told Brother Hanscom is almost necessary to name cities around here. But if you've tried to convince folks that you don't know anything about that darker side of life, please, when I give my title, don't react. Okay, to maintain your image, (laughs) because I'm not going to the pool hall with this title. My title tonight is number 10 in the corner. (laughs) Okay, so we're not playing billiards. We're not down the local pool hall. I hope to make sense of that title here in just a little bit. 
Let me, let me start with a simple declaration tonight that I hope you agree with. I believe it from the center of my being outwards in all directions. There is nothing like the church. Ooh, I want to tell you, I thank God for the church. There is nothing like this wondrous thing that we are a part of. Paul called it a mystery which had been hidden through the ages past but was revealed in the New Testament age. It is such a wonder that the Bible uses various descriptive metaphors and similes to help us grasp the profound nature of this thing we are a part of. There is the marvel of Christ having a bride which is identified as the church of Jesus Christ. Individually, we are sons and daughters of him, but collectively we comprise the bride of Christ and we are betrothed to him and we're anxiously awaiting that day when we sit down with him at the marriage supper of the lamb this is a bride alternately it's called a building crafted by God and founded upon the message of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and all of us as lively stones fitted together in the walls of this place framed up together the Bible says built up to be a holy habitation unto the Lord this is no I know we say well the church is not the building no it's not this building but the church is this building God has fitted us together and framed up for himself a holy habitation in which he dwells his church is a building his church is a family in which we are brothers and sisters and God is our father and there is a familial care and unity which arises from this relationship wherein we might even disagree from time to time but underneath it all we just kind of keep it in mind. We've got the same daddy, we've got the same mama, we've got the same blood, we've got the same name and even if we don't look alike and we may not sound alike and we may not think alike but we're still family. There's something to it. There's a reason we call each other brother this and sister that. We are reaffirming to one another. I'm with you. I'm, I, I'm something, you're something special to me. We are in this thing together. We are a family. We are a family. It's a bride. It's a body. It's a family. It's depicted as a body. With Christ as the head and each of us as members in particular. No two alike, but no one unneeded. All interconnected and valuable until a disparate group of people with different backgrounds and different educations and different incomes and different perspectives and different nations of origin and different skin color and different political perspectives can lay all that stuff aside at the door of the church and say that may define our culture but it can't divide the church. I'm telling you, the church needs to stand up and be a witness in that age that says they say we can't get along out there, but you come in this place and we hold on to one another no matter how much we may not think alike on some things. We're anchored to the gospel of Jesus Christ and holding on to the cross. And with, Hey, you can't divide us in here. I may not be able to speak to the political climate in your wonderful country, but I can tell you where we're living, I've never seen our nation more divided. Divided along political lines, divided along racial lines, divided along income lines. And everybody's trying to get in their little camp and say, well, I'll get along with those that are just like me, and anybody different than me is my enemy. 
defeat that mindset. We got to demonstrate to this world we're not even citizens here. I mean, I hope you love your country. You should. Canada's a wonderful, wonderful country with a history of freedom and standing in the world. But I'm telling you what, we're not even citizens here. We, hey, we've been adopted into another country. We're citizens someplace else. So I don't know how to tell you this except say it. It doesn't much matter who your prime minister is or who's in charge of parliament. We're not even citizens. Our king is never going to be replaced. Our king sits on the throne forever. And my hope, hey. Your hope can't be found in Ottawa. Your hope has to be found in heaven. We're something different. This is the church. This is the church. This is the church. I pastored for 15 years in a place most of you have never heard of. Very few of you probably ever heard of it. Called Florissant, Missouri. I don't know how much this made it up north of the border. but Many of you might have heard of a place that's just six miles from where I pastored. Ferguson, Missouri. That ring a bell? Yeah, that's that's where all that racial tension in our nation started back a couple years ago because of the the killing of of a young man named Michael Brown by a police officer. I'm not here to discuss policing. I'm not here to even talk about that. All I'm telling you is that while the city was burning and all the national media was focused on it and all the educated idiots out there were saying you can't get along, I wish they could have come into our church on Sunday. We run our buses in Ferguson. I got all kinds of sweet people that called me pastor that lived in Ferguson, came to our church. I walked in on Sunday. I just made an announcement. I said, okay, folks, all that stuff stops out there. It don't come in here. We're not black and white and rich and poor and all these little subgroups. I'll tell you what we are. We're blood-washed children that have been redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. Every one of us, no matter what you look like, no matter where you came from, there is nothing like the church. Nothing like the church. So this is a place we do it every week. We rejoice with those that rejoice and we weep with those that weep. And when one member suffers, we all the members suffer with it. And one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. It's what allows this group of people to come together and weep on one week when somebody's hurting it. And rejoice the next week at what God is doing. It is that mystery of this wonderful thing called the church. That brings us together tonight to refocus on our mission and to prepare to commit to fund that mission tomorrow when we come together. I'll just say it again. There's nothing like the church. Woo! I just want to take a couple minutes more to brag on the church tonight. This is where you'll find love. This is where second chances are common things. This is where you'll be embraced and forgiven and supported and cared for. This is where you can come after a weary week of struggle and have somebody walk up next to you, put an arm around your shoulder, say, man, you've been on my mind all week. I've been praying for you. This is where we bask in the warmth of collective worship. This is where we find healing in our minds and our hearts. This is where we bring our mistakes and find mercy. We bring our disappointments and find hope. We bring our weariness and find strength. Let me say it a little different. I love the church. Oh, I started with there's nothing like the church. I'll go one further. I love the church. This is the greatest thing in my life, being a part of the church. For whatever flaws it might have, she's still the prettiest girl at the party. So you, you, don't, you don't know our church. Sure I do. You're just like all the rest of us. 
Got your warts? Got your challenges? So everybody here is not perfect. I'm aware of that. You're here. I know that. But there's still, this is the greatest thing in my life. I just, I just want to advise you. Don't talk bad about my mama. Okay, my mama's still living. Mom turned, Lord be merciful to her, another couple months, she'll turn 90. The 7th of December, she still lives alone, still manages her own affairs, can still whip most everybody here, if need be. Starting with she, <laughs> I tell her she's a tough old German bird. That's my phrase for her. She, now, I might have some things about mama that frustrate me. Lord, I hope she's not watching. There's occasional things mama does that I get a little about. But don't you come up and start talking bad about my mama. See, that's, she gave birth to me. She loved me when nobody loved me. When I fell down and skinned my knees, she's the one that picked me up and bandaged me and got me back on my feet. Don't you talk bad about my mama. I'm just, I'm just telling you, I, I, I'm an easygoing guy. Really, I think I, I just I refuse to live my life offended all the time. Life's too short for that, okay? So, so if you come up after church and say, you know, I think you're about the sorriest preacher I ever heard, I'm just going to smile at you and feel bad that you got such poor taste in preachers. <laughs> but if you come up and start bad-mouthing my mama, I might get acquainted with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or something. I don't know. That's going to be a little harder for me to swallow because I know what she did for me. The church mothered us all. Don't start talking bad about my mama. Don't start talking about all the problems with the church. I know she may have some challenges, but friend, this place gave birth to me. This place loved me when nobody loved me. This place picked me up when I fell down and got me back on my feet. I love the church. I love the church. I thank God for the church. We built our new, our new building in St. Louis. And we had more room we'd ever had in a new church building. We had a whole big old long hallway of classrooms. Ever. We had all these classrooms for everything, you know, junior and primary and beginner and all those different ages and junior high, this. And I, I didn't even know what order they went in. I, I really didn't. I just gave them my kids, put them in the one where they fit. I don't know. I went to my bishop, Bishop Dugas, one day. I said, we're one classroom short. He said, what did we forget? Because we had, just, we had stuff for discipleship, care, for deaf ministry. He said, what did we forget? I said, I just want one more. I just need one more class. I want, I want a door that locks from the outside with a sign on it that says negative people. I just want a class. For negative people with a door that locks from the hallway. So I just put them in there. Lock the door. And let them visit and complain about everything that's wrong with the church. They can do that till Jesus comes and probably for seven years thereafter. But there's some of us that said, I love this place. I love the church. It's been good to me. It may not everything be just like I think it ought to be, but it's so much better than I used to have it. My sins were washed away here. My family was healed here. My kids were saved here. Anybody besides me love the church. 
You can't run me off from the church. You can't talk bad enough about me to make me leave this place. In fact, I'll go one step beyond. I love that. I need the church. I ain't going to heaven without the church. If I'm going to go up in the rapture of the church, I better be in the church. I'll just go on record. My mind needs the church. My marriage needs the church. My family needs the church. My kids need the church. My finances need the church. I need this place. This is a wonderful blessing. I love the church. I depend on the church. But between here and there, we depend on one another. Yes, it is unquestionably true that at the end of this road, I must have worked out my own salvation with fear and trembling. That's true. When I stand face to face with him in his radiant glory, I will stand there and all the excuses will dry up in my mouth. Ain't nobody going to stand there and look at him that day and say, well, I could have lived for God if it wasn't for so-and-so. No, no, no. There'll be no excuses on that day. So, yes, I am ultimately responsible for my own eternity. But it is also true that no one is an island. We are not independent. We are interdependent. Look around this room and you will see those on whom you depend to make it to heaven. And you will see people that depend on you to make it to heaven. And that is the point at which I want to arrive tonight. We are accountable for each other. There is an incredible responsibility that rests on this man and his good wife. It is profound and immeasurably heavy, and it is something that I promise you you cannot grasp until you have felt its weight yourself. It's a glorious blessing to be a pastor. It is an incredible weight to be a pastor. To know that someday you will stand before God and give an account for how you handled the spiritual well-being of a group of people that he died for. That'll keep you up nights. That's why I'll just say uh, you ought to be real careful before you ever put your tongue against your pastor for some decision he made when you, aren't, you don't know everything he knows, okay? That was just free unless, unless you're a border agent. I'm not scared of you. But I want for just a moment this season to broaden the focus because he is not the only one that's responsible to get you to heaven. I'll tell you who else is partially responsible to get you there, sir. He is, and she is, and she is, and he is, and he is, and she is, and she is, and he is. We are in this thing together, and we help bear the weight of getting everybody to heaven. I, uh, some years ago at Christmas time, my, my family and I, it was just a, a unique season. My, my, my parents were, this was many years ago, my dad was still living. My parents were off with one of my sisters. They went to Hawaii. And, and my other sister and her husband or something, it was just, it was me and Michelle and the kids, and we didn't really have any family to get together with that year. I had a boatload of frequent flyer miles and hotel points and stuff, so I just said, where do we want to go? Where have we never seen that we'd like to go see? And we decided we wanted to go to San Francisco, to the Bay Area, spend the week of Christmas. So we did that. And it, it, it's not near as nice now as it was then, but it was just a great place to go visit. Wouldn't want to live there, couldn't afford to live there, but I wanted to go see it. One of the things we did, now, you'll have to help me, help the, the poor guy from below the border. Do you folks have redwood sequoia trees in Canada out west, way out west? Well, I didn't figure they'd be here. We don't have them on the east side either. Okay, so you at least understand what I'm talking about. These massive, well, in San Francisco, you go up over the Golden Gate Bridge, you go through South Salido, and there's a, there's a place up there called Muir Woods, and it's one of the redwood groves in California. I want to tell you, if you have never seen the redwoods personally, 
no picture does them justice. I, I'm just, I assure you, no National Geographic YouTube channel can capture what these trees are like. They are, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't do metric. My, my sincere apologies. They're 300 feet tall. Roughly maybe 100-ish meters. That's a big tree. In, in metric or either, it's big either way. That's a big tree. And they're just, it's just all inspired to stand here. Look up, it's just incredible. So amazing. I need, I need two volunteers, a couple of you Bible school young men that would just help me. Two, any two can just, that's one. Two, very good. Mathematics is working. Would you come stand one on either side of me? Just stand here a minute on either side. I'll get right back with you. So we're, walk, we're walking through these woods. Now, I grew up in the mid, middle part of the United States in Illinois, as he referenced, and, and I, my head is cluttered with little factoids of things that I don't know if they're any good, but it works well right now. And I'm aware that the trees that we have there in the Midwest, the oaks, the maples, the elms, all those kinds of trees, on average, on average, the roots of those trees go down as deep as the tree is tall, on average. So if the tree is a 25-foot maple, it typically will have roots that go down 25 feet. Now, the soil strata and composition could change that fact, but in, as a rule, they go down as deep as they are tall. You see an old, mature 80-foot oak, and as a rule, those roots will go down 80 feet. Usually, there is as much mass above the ground as there is below the ground. It's about the same. So I'm standing there looking at these 300-foot trees. Wow. <laughs> Walking through the forest, I come on this little sign on one of the pathways that's been put up by the Forestry Department or the Department of National Parks or whatever it was. And it says, the roots of the average redwood go down three feet. That's what I said. <laughs> Are we related? Because that was my reaction. I said, that cannot be true. I mean, I, I, I look a little silly, but I studied Newtonian physics in college. I understand you cannot have a 300-foot lever and put the load out 300 feet from the fulcrum. Those coastal winds catching all those branches, three-foot roots are not going to hold that up. I said to myself, there's been a typo. They meant 300, and they put three. That's embarrassing. I should tell someone. I really wish what I'm about to tell you didn't happen. Pray for my wife. She lives with this. I went looking for a park ranger to alert them to the typo on their sign. And I went walking up through there and looked down this path, and I saw a park ranger up there feeding Yogi and Boo Boo or whatever he was doing down there. And I, I went right up there, but I said, Sir, I need to tell you something. This is kind of embarrassing. I just can't believe nobody's mentioned this to you. If you go up there around that corner, there's a sign, and it's got, I'm sorry, it says, you're going to laugh. It says on there that the roots of these trees only go down three feet. He said, that's correct. I said, that can't be correct. They couldn't stand up. He said, did you read the rest of the sign? <laughs> there was more, was there? <laughs> he said, it is true that the roots of these trees only go down three feet, but they go out up to a mile. And in that mile, they find the roots of the next redwood. And they wrap them together, and they find the roots of the next redwood, and they wrap them together. He said, sir, what you don't understand is the wind's not blowing on a tree. It's blowing on the forest. And he said, since it can't blow down the forest, it can't blow down any one tree. I wish somebody would understand hell can't knock the church down, so hell can't knock you down. <laughs> 
if we just stay holding on to each other. Come on, somebody, we're in this thing together. We're going to hold on to each other. We're going to make it. We... No storm can knock us down. No battle from hell can take the church down as long as we hold on to each other. I told that man, I said, you don't even understand what I mean by this, but I'm going to preach the hair off that. He said, I don't know if I know what you mean, but let me tell you something else then. He said, there have been trees. I think this guy had to be a preacher at his part time. He said, there are trees out in that forest. We thought they were dead. They hadn't shown signs of life in years. If it had been up to us, we would have just cut them down. But their neighbors would not give up on them. He said, and when they were weak and sickly, they held them up. And he said, sure enough, one, one spring day, there's a little leaf out on the end of a twig. And the next year, there were some more. And he said, if you saw them today, you'd never know they were weak. You'd never know they went through a season of struggle. You'd never know there were days they didn't look so good because somebody nearby... Said, when you're weak, I'm not going to cut you down. I'm going to hold you up. When you're struggling, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to hold on to you. That's what the church does. So I can do nothing that might hinder that young man from going to heaven. Even if it means depriving myself of my rights. And I must do everything I can do to get him to heaven. Even if that means sacrificing above what is comfortable or what some might call reasonable. It would probably be good for me to get to my text and title. Even people who know hardly anything about the Bible have at least heard of the Ten Commandments. If nothing else, they are aware of legal battles which have surrounded their display in public venues around our countries. This concise expression of God's moral code is known as the Decalogue, and it's found, I've known all my life since growing up in Sunday school, I've always heard it's found in two places in Scripture. You can find it when God gave it to Moses, and you can find it when Moses reiterated it to Israel in his Deuteronomy uh, discourses. It's easy to find. God made it easy for us. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, that's 10 times 2. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, that's 10 divided by 2. If you can't do that math, I cannot help you. But I've always known that. You could find it in two places. It was easy. Oh, certainly there's verses all through the Bible that reiterate these truths. But to find that list, you find it in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Grew up through, you know, youth group and Bible school. Always thought that until recently. I was reading a while back in Leviticus chapter 19. And I discovered something kind of amazing to me. You remember Leviticus, don't you? It's that book that killed many a... Bread chart? I think there have been more New Year's resolutions killed by Leviticus than by Dunkin' Donuts. I'm going to read the Bible through this year. Do you do good in Genesis? It actually hit Leviticus. You go, well, maybe I'll just lose weight or something, you know. And that's a shame because there's good stuff in there. Leviticus chapter 19, I was reading it and I found amazingly that interspersed Throughout that chapter is a third inventory of the Ten Commandments. Oh, they're not quite as concise, and some of them are worded a little differently, and they're in a different order, but there really can be no debate that they're in there. 
I'm not going to take time to put all the scriptures on the screens. So I'm move very quickly, but just follow along with me as I reference some verses from Leviticus 19. The first commandment is, I'm the Lord God that brought you out of Egypt. Have no other gods before me, right? Here's Leviticus 19, 36, 37. I'm the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe all my statutes, all my judges. Do them, I am the Lord. Commandment two is about graven images. Here's Leviticus 19 and 4. Turn you not into idols, nor make yourself molten gods. Commandment three, don't take his name in vain. Leviticus 19 and 12. Ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shall thou profane the name of thy God. Commandment number four is about the Sabbath. Here's Leviticus 19 and 3. Keep my Sabbath. This is blowing my mind. I started jotting notes and circling verses. Commandment number five is honor your father and mother. Here's Leviticus 19 and 3. You shall fear every man his mother and his father. I might just point out to you that when it says honor, it lists dad first. When it says fear, it puts mom first. I'll just point that out to you. (laughs) Commandment number six is don't kill. Leviticus 19, 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. On the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, you've heard don't kill, but I say don't hate, he didn't make that up on the spot. He reached back in Leviticus 19. That had already been written there. Commandment number seven is no adultery. Leviticus 19, 20 and 29 refers to lying carnally with a woman, prostitutes and whoredom. Commandment number eight, don't steal. Leviticus 19, 11, thou shalt not steal. Commandment number nine, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Here's Leviticus 19, 11, 13, 16. Neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. It is blowing my mind. I printed out. Exodus 20, and I printed out Leviticus 19, and I taped them side by side, and I started drawing lines. There's number one down here, and two, there's three and four, and there's five and six, and there's seven, and there's eight, and there's nine, and... Wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Unto it, walk hard, thanks, he said, wheat, enough. I couldn't find it. There didn't see, see number 10 is the one about coveting, right? And I couldn't find anything in Leviticus 19 that referenced coveting. I searched all through there and I thought, God, you're really messing up a potentially cool message. Why is that not here? I don't understand. I searched all through Leviticus. In fact, then it hit me. I had a brilliant thought. (laughs) They don't happen often. There were no chapters when the Bible was written. So it's probably in the last part of 18 or the first part of 20. That was brilliant. It was wrong, but it was brilliant. Wasn't there either. I used my high dollar computer Bible software to search the entire book of Leviticus for the word covet. You know how many times it occurs in Leviticus? Zero. Well, why, God? Why would you reiterate all the first nine and leave out number ten? Was it somehow less important? Was it less applicable somehow? Less a challenge for people than others? And then, my dear brothers and sisters, I found it. Number ten is in the corner. Leviticus 19, and these I will put on the screen, nine and ten. And when you reap the harvest of your land... Ye shall not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You see, coveting is when you desire something that is not yours. 
And God made it clear to Israel that what was in the corner of their fields did not belong to them. He had given it to someone else. You may have planted it. You may have watered it. You may have pulled the weeds. But it's not yours. Just because it's inside your fence does not mean it's yours. He said, I have ordained that the grain in the corner of your field belongs to someone who is weary and someone that doesn't have any of their own and someone who is broken and someone who is in need. It is not yours. It is theirs. See, this is what Ruth capitalized on, remember? When she came back from Moab and she went into the field of Boaz and followed the reapers... She wasn't gathering Boaz's grain. She was gathering her grain. Because God had given it to her clear back in Leviticus 19. Oh yeah, I know. He he had him throw down handfuls on purpose. That's because she was good looking. Guys, just get it in your head. A good looking woman make you do some strange stuff. So yeah, I know the handfuls on purpose were extra. But that's not, she didn't know that was going to happen. That's not why she went in that field. She went in there because the sovereign God had said, on a day when you're weak, I will put... I will put something in somebody else's hand to keep it safe for the day that you need it. But it's not his. It's yours. Are you hearing me? And so if Boaz had looked at that and said, I planted it, I watered it, I want it, he would have been coveting something that belonged to somebody else. Because God said, just because I let you take care of it doesn't mean it's yours. And man, I know folks right now are having seizures and they're billfold because all you think I'm talking about is money. But I'm going to go a little broader than that today. I would present to you tonight that I believe this is how the church works. Not everything in my field belongs to me. God puts some things under my control for the good of somebody else. Let me say it this way. When I engage in praise and worship, it's not just to make me feel God. It's so somebody else can feel God. I'm not supposed to sing until I have victory. I'm supposed to sing until you have victory. I'm not supposed to worship until I get a breakthrough. I'm supposed to worship until you get a breakthrough. There there is some worship in the corner of my field. And it doesn't belong. God gave it to me so that it would be ready on the day that you needed it. So on the day you come into church broken and battered and weary, I might be able to give a little worship that will bring some strength to you. And on the day that I'm weary, you give a little worship that will bring some strength to me. I'm not supposed to pray until my kids are saved. I'm supposed to pray until your kids are saved. I'm not supposed to give until I'm blessed. I'm supposed to give until the church is blessed. Somebody hearing me? I'm not supposed to be faithful enough for me to go to heaven. I'm supposed to be faithful enough so everybody else goes to heaven. It's the corner of my field. It's not mine. Let me me make this practical for you. I pastored for 15 years. I'm a recovering pastor. Several years ago in that journey, it was a wonderful, wonderful season. I feel so blessed. But I went through one of the darkest seasons of my life during that time. The circumstances that precipitated it are immaterial. But I was ready to quit. I was. If that's too honest for you, I'm sorry. 
I'm going out preaching camp meetings, and I'm ready to quit. I'll go be a plumber or something. It's a dark season in my life. I went weeks when I could not feel God. You were the pastor. Yes, that's probably why. In our church, it was the mirror image. He said, sir, I sat here in our church. I remember that Sunday morning, I was so dry. Choir's up there singing, and I'm just, oh, God, where are you? Looking around my field, there's not a blade of green, anything. Just old dead, dry dust every place I looked. I was starving to death spiritually. I'm sorry if this shakes you, but I was backsliding on a church pew as the pastor. I was dying spiritually. I've got to preach in a couple of minutes. I don't feel anything. On that morning, one of our founding members, Sister Foster, you would know. Everybody, everybody in our church knows her as Granny Foster. Most folks don't even know her first name. She introduced, she's here today. She's still living in her 90s. She met you today. She'd say, hi, I'm Granny. That's all she's going to say. In fact, when I became pastor and went to visit her in the hospital the first time, I got to the door of the hospital and realized I don't know her first name. Do you know the front desk will not send you to the room of Granny Foster? That's honest. I really. So help me, bitch. I had to call back get church secretary. I said, what's her name? I don't even know her name. On that morning, Granny Foster. Now, ain't no nice way to say this. She's here. I'd say it. I love her. She loves me. She's old. Okay? She's sneezing dust. Okay? <laughs> She's... She's combing cobwebs, all right? She's... And on that morning, as I'm dying over there, there praise team's up there singing, and she got out of her pew, and she started up toward the front. And I'm thinking, I hope, hope they sing a long time, because <laughs> it's going to kind of be embarrassing if she gets right here and they stop. <laughs> But by the grace of God, they kept singing. She came all the way right up here. She put those little bony hands in the air. She started giving it all she had. Kind of looked like this. I ran as fast as my pudgy little self could get from that pew to where she was. And I grabbed her hand and passed her. When I did, lightning shot through me. I felt more Holy Ghost than I had felt in a month. The darkness broke. The depression shattered. The power of God fell on me. You know what happened? She didn't go up there and give that because she needed it. She had a little extra that day. And I walked into the corner of her field. And I found what I needed on that day. I'm just asking somebody, we got to come to church saying, I'm going to give a little extra. I'm going to pray a little extra. I'm going to sing a little extra. I'm going to give a little extra. I'm going to worship a little extra. Not because I need it, but because somebody down the pew might be dying and they need what's in the corner of my field. I give that extra worship not because I have to have it to go to heaven but that cocaine addict at the end of the pew that's here for the very first time doesn't have any of their own right now and needs to come into the corner of my field 
See, that's the wonder of the church. I eat in your field when I'm starving, and you eat in my field when you're starving, and together we get one another to heaven. And it is why I cannot come into church tonight or tomorrow morning or tomorrow night and say, well, I think I've given enough. When I do that, I'm not depriving me. I'm depriving somebody down the pew who needed to come into my field of faithfulness, into the corner of my worship field, and find what never belonged to me in the first place. And when I look at that and say, I'm not going to give it, no, no, no then I am violating the 10th commandment because I am coveting what was never mine. When I pray, it's not all about me. When I give, it's not so I'll be blessed. When I separate myself unto holy living, it is in part about your spiritual well-being. When I discipline myself in conduct and appearance, I might be saving a teenager who's watching me. When I worship when I don't feel like it, I might be strengthening a soul who's been battered by the enemy all week. When I come to service for a midweek Bible study after a long day at work, when I'd really rather just relax at home, I just might make the difference for somebody when a discouraged member of the family walks into the the corner of my commitment field that night and finds what they need to make it another day. And when I feel like it's too much for me, For God to ask more of my time or my energy or my emotions or my money or my worship or my prayer, I have to shake myself a moment and say it was never all mine in the first place. It's yours and yours and yours and yours and yours. And when I freely throw open the gates of my life, And say, God, I will not only give what is required, I will offer the extra that you've put under my control. Then I am edifying and strengthening someone who has need of that tonight. I want to relate one more story for a moment. You be seated just a second and I'm done. I don't know if the musicians want to come. That's fine. I'm I'm nearly finished. My grandparents came to this country from Germany, small children. German was their native language. <laughs> My mom's maiden name was Klepper, K-L-O-E-P-P-E-R. That's not Irish. My grandmother spoke German first. German is a, is a good language when you're mad. It's not terribly romantic sounding. I'm not sure how you whisper in somebody's ear. Because it's a tough sound. My grandma scared me, boy. She'd get mad. She'd scare me. She'd switch over to German. Yes, ma'am. I don't know what it means, but I'll do it. Roust. That's how she'd get you up in the morning. Roust. Yes, ma'am. They were from the old country. They were Lutheran. With a capital Luth. 
And uh, they settled, got married in 1919, settled just across the river from St. Louis, a place called Belleville, Illinois. And um, in the early 1920s, my grandmother got a very severe ear infection. Now, today, we just take a few antibiotics, no big deal. No such convenience then. Proximity of that to the brain and it's made it very serious. She tried all the home remedies, all she could. She was getting better. During the early 1920s, there was a revival in Belleville called the Price Revival. And had a big service one night. They advertised a healing service. And my grandparents didn't even really know if they believed in that. But they were desperate. So they went to church. Sat on the back row. But they went to church. I would love to tell you that night, lightning struck, my grandma fell out in the aisle, healed and talking in tongues. It didn't happen. Their Lutheran ancestry made them just a little uncomfortable with what was going on in that Pentecostal service. They were, they were too respectful to leave. They were too scared to move. So they just sat back there. 1921, there was a man named Brother Underwood that started a church in, in Belleville, and he was there that night. And when the service concluded, they invited Brother Underwood, whoever was in charge of the service, his Brother Price or whoever it was, invited Brother Underwood to come up and pray the dismissal prayer. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever had in my life, and I've been in church all my life, I don't think I've ever had a spiritual high watermark occur during a dismissal prayer. If you've had that encounter, God bless you. God take us to our separate place to abode and bless the food at Wendy's in Jesus' name. It's never profoundly moved me. They invited Brother Underwood to come up and pray. I don't know where praying stopped and prophesying started. All I know is he threw open the gate. He said, I'm not just going to give what I have to give. Give a little extra. In the middle of his prayer, my grandfather turned around to my grandmother and said, I don't know who that is, but we're going to his church. That is how Pentecost came into our family. I'm baptized in Jesus' name today because an old elder gave a little extra. My kids were filled with the Holy Ghost because that man gave a little extra. Wasn't no way he could know he was standing at that pulpit dismissing at the close of that service that his willingness to actually move in the spirit just a little bit and just push and give a little more than maybe some people thought he had to. Couldn't have possibly known he'd be providing you a speaker for Saturday night emissions conference in 2022. He didn't know what he set in motion that day. He didn't know what he rescued. He didn't know what he saved. I don't know what that dismissal prayer saved me from. That dismissal prayer may have saved me from drug addiction. That dismissal prayer may have saved me from suicide. That dismissal prayer may have saved me from demonic oppression and, and possession. I don't know. I just know my life today is forever different because one man said... It's not about what I have to give. It's come over in the corner of my field today. And my grandparents, knowing nothing about this doctrine, stumbled into the corner of that field and unleashed a multi-generational Pentecostal revival in their ancestors because one man said, I've got a little extra. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.